Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. You hear a lot about the Senate as a millionaire's club. And then there are people like Amy Klobuchar, uh, the senator from Minnesota. Uh, In fact, she's written a book called The Senator Next Door, uh, talking about her upbringing in suburban uh, Minnesota, the daughter of a sports writer, his struggles with alcoholism, and a whole lot of... uh, formative experiences that have made her such an interesting figure in our national politics. Uh, And I sat down with her the other day to talk about these things, about the fight over the Supreme Court, about her recent trip with the president to Cuba. Amy Klobuchar, welcome. Thank you, Uh, David. Not just a uh, United States senator, but an author, the senator next door, Tell me what Next Door was like, and you wrote about it, uh, growing up in uh, Minnesota. Well, that was actually one of the reasons I wrote the book, is I wanted to make clear that people from regular backgrounds can end up in the Senate, uh, going from uh, being a car hop at the A&W root beer stand, uh, where they made Love me wear uh, a yeah, yeah, well, yeah, but you didn't have to wear a T-shirt that said, take home a jug of fun, like they made <laughs> me. But to go from that to being a U.S. senator, so yeah, I grew up in a... Uh, pretty middle-class suburban neighborhood, and uh, I don't think I ever expected to be in politics, much less uh, the Senate. My first political involvement was raising money for the high school prom, lifesaver lollipops. We got them for cheap and then marked them up, good entrepreneurial venture. Uh, And so I just tell that story, including my own high school prom, because I think so many people think you have to be uh, someone famous or someone with a lot of money to run for office, and certainly the cynicism has grown over the past year. Well, that may be because a lot of people who you serve with in the Senate (laughs) have made a lot of money and spent it to get to the Senate. That may be correct. There may be a reason people think that. But I wanted to make clear that there's another path, and uh, and that's the path I took. So when I was a young reporter in, in 1977, I, I, I was on night sides at the Tribune, and I called. I was deathly ill, and I loved the job, but I called in sick the first time I ever called in sick. I said, that's too bad because we wanted to send you up to Minnesota because Hubert Humphrey is dying, and, mm-hmm. and, and, we, and I said, I'll go. And I went, and I stayed up for 36 hours when I got up there. He passed away just about when I arrived, and I spent a lot of time talking to people in Minnesota, and every person I spoke to said, yeah, I knew Hubert. Hubert, yeah. old, he knew my family, and, and I, I was wondering, you know, the DFL tradition and Hubert Humphrey were big in Minnesota when you were a kid. Uh, what do you remember about all of that, and how much did that permeate your view of politics? Well, um, first of all, I remember that day because my dad took me to the Capitol after he died, and there were thousands of Minnesotans. I stood outside there. I right. was there. They were there all through the night. It was like 13 below, yeah. and was- everybody lined up 
to pay their respects. Right. It was the most extraordinary thing I'd ever seen. Yeah, no, it was. And and that was part of this Minnesota grassroots tradition. There's an old funny story about Humphrey. He had a cohort, Miles Lord, who went on to be a federal judge. And Miles Lord, once their, their car stalled, uh, and there was a bus that had also was stopped, Miles Lord gets on the public bus and says to the people, there's a guy that's going to get on the bus that's going to say he's Hubert Humphrey. He's not. He has a <laughs> So Hubert Humphrey gets on the bus to greet everyone. Hello. And they're all like, I'm not talking to you. Um, and I only tell that story because Humphrey was just flabbergasted. He couldn't believe that he got no response. Um, and that is because he was such a person of you know, the politics of joy, the happy warrior. Yeah. Um, and so that was part. For me, um, I think politics for me was more through my dad as a reporter, like yourself. Yeah, he was a sports reporter. But you know, Jimmy Breslin, uh, the great columnist, once said that political reporting is the first cousin of sports reporting. <laughs> and well, I think he's right about that's that. That's true. But he actually, so he started doing just general reporting. He called the 1960 election, the year I was born. Uh, he actually was working for the Associated Press. Uh, Minnesota, Illinois, yeah, and California yeah, were the three Kennedy states Nixon. out. Super Kennedy close. Nixon, he's from the Iron Range. His dad was an iron ore miner. That was the part that hadn't come in. And he called it and wrote the story. And actually, um, when Minnesota, when they announced Minnesota, the AP beat everyone else out. Uh, and James Rustin of the New York Times wrote a piece that said, um, when Minnesota was called for Kennedy, 13 minutes later, Richard Nixon conceded. And my dad said that uh, when he wrote that story, uh, they all celebrated in the newsroom and the AP. He went out to a Swedish cafe, had some lunch, came back, and was assigned his next story. Yeah. Three pigs were stuck in a mud pit in Faribault. <laughs> so he started with that, went into sports, but then actually ended up writing a column about anything he wanted, including politics. Three so that pigs, was a lot of my... Three pigs being stuck in a mud pit. <laughs> Sounds like political reporting exactly. a little bit, but uh, so that was my your life, governor but... in that uh, in that uh, at that time was Orville Freeman, right? Yes, and he became Secretary of Agriculture. Under so obviously Kennedy appreciated that Minnesota came his way. I think so. And uh, but for me, growing up in those you know seventies in the suburbs, the truth was you know we'd hear highlights on our transistor radio as we would uh, lay out in foil boxes on top of our roofs to get tan. <laughs> uh, but it wasn't a major part of my everyday life as much as it was that my dad would talk about his work until I got into college and I started volunteering on campaigns and then worked for Walter Mondale uh, as his uh, intern when my sophomore year of college was something I'll never and forget. And you sought that out because you, I'd started, you started get getting interested. interested. And here was a Minnesotan, was the vice president of the United States, and I went in there all excited. And my first assignment for three weeks was to do the furniture inventory. I had to crawl under every table, desk, and lamp and write down the serial number. Yeah. Uh, so that I wonder was if it. that stuff is still there. It, well, that was what I learned. The vice president was very honest. Nothing was missing. Yeah. <laughs> so now as a senator, when you go back there, do you find yourself peeking under chairs to see if it's the same Well, one? I do. I always tell young people, like, you have this expectation you're going to change the world in your first job, but what matters is that you do it well and you do it with enthusiasm. And as I point out, that was my first job in Washington. This was my second, so it worked <laughs> out pretty well. You know, before I want to talk to you more about your uh, career, but I want to uh, ask you uh, something about your dad. Uh, he was a very, very prominent sports writer uh, in Minnesota. Uh, but he also, you uh, wrote, uh, was an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. uh, how did that impact on your life? 
Mm-hmm. Well, he's recovered now at age 88, happily yeah. married for the third time and sober. Uh, but that went on a lot of my time growing up. In fact, he said he'd stop Not drinking. uncommon, by the way, among reporters. No. As a former reporter, I'm... You spent yeah. a lot of time in saloons. Yeah. So for me, it was it was tough on my sister, on myself, my mom. My parents ended up getting divorced when I was 16. And, you know, he wouldn't come home. Christmas morning, we're waiting. It was, it was uh, a hard thing. And it made me want to change things in his life, uh, which eventually he got two DWIs in the 70s, which were just no one cared back then. Big deal. Uh, but by the third DWI, uh, which was later, right before I got married, actually, then he actually had a problem. He was going to lose his license. He had time hanging over his head. And he ended up going to treatment and that changed everything. So I literally saw him climb the highest mountains, which he's done, and then go down into the deepest valleys from alcoholism. Uh, But also seeing him recover uh, is for me an inspiration. I don't know what it is about the newspaper business, but I had uh, some of of the best reporters that I worked with were alcoholics and they could come, they'd go out to lunch and they'd come back blind drunk and they'd write (laughs) these beautiful pieces on deadline and I'm thinking how, how does how do they do that yeah. uh, but it's but it, it it's sort of endemic it was endemic at that time to the trade yeah and I think back then they would drink with cops they drink with everyone you know the sports coach uh, he and Norm Van Brocklin uh, actually quarterback for the uh, that's the former the, Vikings, uh, the, the former Vikings coach got into a fist fight yeah. once in a hotel room and oh, the that only right? thing that got broken was the TV and when Mike Ditka your Bears coach yes. was once testifying in front of the Commerce Committee with all the cameras on him i asked him told him the story uh, publicly and i said he said well senator i too have gotten into a fist fight with norm van brock <laughs> yeah. uh i can't imagine what uh Mike was adding to the uh, it was about to the proceedings it was an there, early but... discussion about disabilities and players. Oh, really? And, yeah, it was pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. that yeah. Mike uh, took a pounding when he was a player. Yeah, and just the you know the issues that have now come out with concussions and yeah. things that we're working on. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to I want to ask you about that as mm-hmm. uh, we move, but but let's pick up the the, the uh, narrative of your career. Uh, what made you decide to become a lawyer? Uh, well, I uh, early on there were Didn't no be lawyers in my family. I I liked writing. I loved writing. I still love writing. That's why I wrote the book. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted to do something to change the world, and I wanted to represent people. My dad. I'd grown up seeing my mom as a second grade teacher, um, loving her job, serving the public, and I'd seen my dad fighting for the public in a different way in his uh, columns in the newspaper. And I figured law was a way that I could do that. And I ended up after college uh, going to the University of Chicago Law School. Fine institution. And it was a a bit of a shock. I had never even read a case before. I had been in the courtroom once, uh, but I came to love the professors there. I found my own path of working on uh, different issues and more public policy oriented things. Uh, and it was a great place to go. Not not a bastion of liberalism. No, that's part of why I chose it. I actually had been at Yale, and it, that was a little bit more liberal. And I wanted to go somewhere where not, where not every day felt like a meeting of the college Democrats. Uh, and I certainly found that place at University of Chicago where Frank Easterbrook was a professor, and uh, no, Scalia had just yeah. left there, actually. Uh, and uh, Judge Posner uh, yeah, was teaching Some of the there. leading conservative yeah. lights on the bench. Uh, Nelson Lund would show up every day. 
day, one of our students with his NRA belt buckle. So it really led to uh, some good discussions. And the professors always called our class the happy class, which I thought meant, oh, they're great, they're social, they get along. And uh, and in fact, it meant that they thought we wouldn't produce many Supreme Court clerks. But <laughs> they did produce in that class one clerk, me and Jim Comey, the director of the Who did FBI. you clerk for? Uh, I ended up, I didn't. I you wanted didn't to go. It, I knew I wanted to go home. That was a decision I made my second year. I was on the law review, uh, but I decided that I wanted to get involved in politics and go into go back to Minnesota. So I went to Dorsey and Whitney and uh, became a partner there and then moved over to another law firm. Now that must have raised eyebrows at the University of Chicago Law School that you would pass on a... a- <laughs> Supreme Court. Uh, not a Supreme Court. I wasn't over oh, I see. No, 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 no. I was more decided not to go the route of oh, going into uh, clerkships. I see. I see. So, so you went back. What kind of law did you practice? Um, I was in general litigation, and then I started doing regulatory policy work, and then Mondale came to the firm. I like to say he followed me, Mm -hmm. Um, and that was great. And I got to work with him half-time and write speeches and go with him on client trips, other things. And it was that was a really good—he's always been a great mentor to me. Yeah. Yeah, I always thought of him—I covered the uh, uh, 80 race and the 84 race, um, and I always thought of him as a really normal guy. Mm -hmm. In fact, I thought that might have been a barrier for him in some ways, that he was— Maybe I, I said to Obama when he was thinking of running for president, I think you, you may be too normal to run for president. <laughs> Uh, and uh, Mondale always struck me as a guy. I was talking about him the other day because yeah. I, I mentioned that I, I heard that he took a shot of scotch before every debate. Uh, and I thought, well, I can relate to a guy like that. You know? He actually, I just had dinner with him this weekend. Yeah. He's like 88 years old. He's in really good spirits. And uh, he has been, so starting when I was the you know intern in his office and then at the law firm, uh, but then just through politics. I, the Kerry Convention, if you remember, that was my first national convention and I'm ready to go out there the day before, give my three-minute speech for John Kerry, who was a prosecutor at the time. And he says to me, well, have you memorized the speech? And I go, well, no, there's, you know, there's teleprompters. And he said, don't trust a teleprompter. <laughs> That's how, that is how Carter said Hubert Horatio Hornblower um, at, that, at, the, at the Carter Convention. Yes. And I said, okay, well, all right, it seemed outdated. I'm up there on the stage. Patrick Leahy's speaking. The teleprompter goes dark. No kidding. And I'm standing there. I look in the front row. They're waiting for me to speak as Walter Mondale. And I have never seen a more I told you so. <laughs> in my life, I get up to the stage. I give my speech. I don't use the teleprompter at all. It came up in the middle and because I'd memorized it like he said. And it went really well. And the organizers had told me that I couldn't even use a little joke about George Bush, where I said something yeah, about... Yes, so I remember that convention. Yeah, you know, you, you I were, was there with Obama. He spoke there, too. Right, well, I... Really? <laughs> but in any case, maybe little more notable than my three minutes. But but he also memorized his speech. That's right. But anyway, I had a joke, a Barbara Jordan quote about how what America wants is something that, that what America wants is something as good as its country and as mm-hmm. a promise as good as its country. And I said, I'd like to end with something famous from someone from Texas. And I paused, not George Bush. And they prohibited me from using that joke. Yeah. But after the teleprompter went dead, I'm like, I so did you joke. use it? Did and you yes, ad lib? Yes, I did. I completely ad libbed because I decided if they you. were having technological problems, I you ran for prosecutor it. when you were thirty-eight years old. What uh, what what prompted you to run for that office? 
Well, I um, really wanted to do something that I, I think a lot of people were saying, well, why don't you go and, you know, uh, run for Secretary of State of Minnesota. It's you knew you want to run open. for something. Yeah, and I just, they said, well, that's better statewide. Being prosecutor, mm-hmm. you're going to have something bad, a case will happen. And I said, no, I want to do this work. I'd worked uh, doing prosecutions for the city of Minneapolis for a few months in a program through my law firm. I loved it. I loved the feeling of the courthouse, some of the drama, some of the real decisions you have to make that have an effect on people's lives. It's a great office, 400 people. And we had a history in Minnesota of not always veteran prosecutors running for the office. They liked the idea of people coming from the outside, Republicans or Democrats. And so I had a really big election that year running against a Republican congressman's sister. And I won by something like seven or eight votes per precinct. Uh, and, and that was 98, right? The, the Jesse yes, Ventura elected governor of uh, Jesse Ventura Minnesota. and I campaigned together in parades next to each other. We always kind of put in the back because we had less money than our opponents. So there you yeah. go. Well, at least you could clear the way if you marched a couple of steps behind him. That's right. The, uh, so tell me about being a, a, a prosecutor. One of the things that you did, I noticed, was, and you uh, wrote about, was you fought for stiffer penalties for drunken driving. And I read that, and I read that with interest because of your dad. Mm-hmm. And uh, Well, part of that is because I'd been in the car with him when he had a, a more minor accident when he was drinking. And so I was able to see... Um, what that meant and how close call that was. And when I got into the office, I never campaigned on felony DWI, but I could not believe the number of people we'd seen killed from drunk drivers. And Minnesota had such a weak law that literally we had people with 22, 23 DWIs that were driving around. One guy actually said when the cops arrested him that he'd moved from Colorado because they had felony DWI. And in our state, it was just a misdemeanor. You, uh, so we got the law changed. Well, and would there... And- what what would have happened to your dad if the law you passed? Had, uh, well, uh, the law the felony kicks in at four DWIs, so I guess he would have been okay at his three. But uh, it was clearly as an incentive for people um, and to not drink and drive. And we've had much uh, decrease in the number of uh, drunk driving um, deaths, which has been a good thing. The other thing that I um, that I really got involved in is actually ahead of our time in terms of some of the issues we're seeing now is some of criminal justice reform. Uh, Minnesota was one of the first states that recorded interrogations, video, and re- whether they were in a squad car, whether they were in custody, it was a Supreme Court ruling. But I went around the country and advocated for that and debated other DAs and explained how our cops actually grew to like it. Uh, we did a DNA review. We did um, all kinds of things with eyewitness ID because that was the biggest way that people were getting wrongfully convicted um, to show the pictures, not just all at once, but one at a time. So I did a lot in that area as well. Your old office is in the news right yes. now because of a police shooting of a of a young African-American man, Jamar Clark, I mm-hmm. believe is his name. Yes. And uh, just this past few weeks, uh, the announcement came that they were not going to prosecute the police officers in that case. This has become a real storyline, not just in Minneapolis, but in uh, throughout the country, including in my hometown uh, of Chicago. Yeah, that is a horrible case in Chicago. It was. But tell me, from a prosecutor's standpoint, uh, how, how you think about these... Mm-hmm. Cases because you work closely with the police, but you also serve the community. Exactly. Well, I figure our mission uh, is always to convict the guilty and protect the innocent, and and that includes victims and people in the community. So, um, 
in my mind, there's just been this breakdown of trust uh, for many reasons, uh, and we have to fix that. And not every case is going to get charged, as what happened in Minnesota. The prosecutor looked carefully at the evidence and um, made the decision. People in the community would say that Mm -hmm. very few of them get charged. That's correct. Um, But the question to me is, one, when there was a case like Chicago, uh, to me, that case was clearly chargeable when you saw it. But Were you surprised that it took a year? Yes, that was to, uh, that did not charges. obviously happen. In the Minnesota. argument was that she was waiting for the federal government to to, yeah. to act, but the federal government never acts on the same. Right, and in our case, we made a plan here. I wasn't involved, but the the prosecutor looked at the case first, the local prosecutor, and now the U.S. attorney is looking at the case. Mm-hmm. And I think that it'll all be done within on six a civil months. rights on uh, a civil violation. rights thing. They've agreed to do that investigation, and it's I think much more transparency in our case. All the information was put out by the prosecutor, whether you agree with the decision or not. All that being said, what you want to do is stop these cases from happening in the first place. Um, You want to fairly review them, and some will be charged and some won't. But there are too many of these shootings happening. So here's my my student. And number one, on a big, big basis, we have to look at criminal justice reform. Uh, We are looking at reducing drug sentences uh, in the Mm -hmm. federal level in Congress, and I'm supportive of that effort as a support Republican Democratic side. That's a that's a breakdown in trust when people feel that you're sending people away for certain offenses for way long and then not for others for as long. Uh, secondly, things like body cameras. I led with talking about videotape interrogations for a reason because that gave people faith that in fact the questions being asked were fair. Uh, grand jury reform. If you're going to use a grand jury, in this case, our prosecutor didn't. He took responsibility for the decision. But to make as much public as you possibly can, um, and doing everything you can to have that transparency. Hiring. Uh, in our state now, we have dozens of Somali police officers, uh, which has gone a long way in making uh, reaching out to that community. Um, and then just outreach police training. Um, you know, a lot of this we're learning now. There's different takedown techniques. There's different techniques they can use to de-escalate a situation. Uh, we had a case when I was prosecutor where a, a mentally ill woman, she was she was actually white uh, with a knife, you know, was in her apartment screaming. Cops come in, charge at them with a knife. They killed her. That created all kinds of reforms in how our police and our state looks at cases of mental illness. What happened to the police officers in that case? That case, case, they weren't prosecuted because, as you know from these standards, you could show that she actually had charged at them with a weapon. In 2006, you ran for the Senate. You got elected to the Senate. Um, What what were your expectations going to the Senate about what (laughs) the Senate would be like? You worked for Walter Mondale, who had served in the Senate uh, at a different time in our history. what were your expectations? Well, I, first of all, I was very focused on doing what was best for my state and getting things done for the state. I think that I thought um, naively that, oh, it'll just be like when I was prosecutor. I come up with an idea, get a bunch of people to support it, and get it done. It's not quite that easy, as you know, and as the president has found out uh, in the Senate. And um, I was stunned by um, sort of the, I felt a little like Alice in Wonderland some days. I remember my first lunch, you know, LBJ room, big photo mm-hmm. of a portrait of LBJ looming over us. And I got a cup of soup and I'm ready to eat it. And Patty Murray runs around. She says, Amy, you just took the entire bowl of Thousand Island dressing. You're, you're <laughs> about to eat it. I said, that's what we do in Minnesota. We eat the Thousand <laughs> Island dressing. Uh, but it, I had a lot of experiences like that. It was very much more male 
dominated than I was used to even in the prosecutor's office because half my employees were women, even though all the police chiefs at the time were men except one. I had 45 police chiefs that worked with me. So um, that was a stunning thing to just sort of come from environments that felt more equal and then suddenly be in this environment that was more than 80% male senators. That has changed over time. The women have gained more power and I think we're better for it. We're still at only 20% though when you look at the numbers of women senators. Um, and then just the partisanship was something that I did not expect. <laughs> you know, people sitting on either sides of the room. I came from an office while I was an endorsed Democrat. The party ID wasn't even on the ballot. I had Republican commissioners that were basically supporting me in my run for the Senate or staying neutral. And so this was a new experience for me. And I found a way to deal with it. I worked across the aisle. I have one of the highest rates of doing bills with Republicans. Um, and then I just focused on what I wanted to get done and mostly economic issues with the downturn and uh, um, with working with our businesses and then consumer issues. But uh, you, you supported Barack Obama in 2008. Presumably your expectation or your hope was, as the spirit of that campaign suggested, that there would be a coming together uh, after he got elected. What happened? Well, that was profoundly sad, I thought, what happened. Now, I think it happened for reasons outside of his control. I think it happened uh, because we were in the middle of the downturn, and people uh, saw some political possible gain coming out of that downturn. And so they decided, we're just going to say no to a bunch of things. I think that he couldn't have anticipated uh, their, the, the base and the money coming in on the other side and what was going to happen there. Um, nevertheless, uh, he has continued to have that as his mindset, which I think is important, and people know that. It's in the people Not that, what the Republicans say, but... That, well, it's in the people that he's hired. I thought David Brooks' recent column, uh, where he went through, maybe we're going to actually miss him uh, in terms of the work uh, that he's done. And when you think about what happened, he inherited the worst uh, economic depression since yeah, the Depression. I was there, I remember. Uh, and he had to get through that and do an imperfect but a, a big stimulus bill. He had to get the Dodd-Frank bill passed so that this wouldn't happen again. Financial and then reform. there was, right, and there were some things that he did, and especially lately, I heard someone say good things happen in the fourth quarter, which is his last yes. two years. I think there's a lot going on now that he's not running again, and so they decided, well, okay, we'll do a transportation bill. Uh, we'll work with Democrats and do this and work with the president. Uh, we will move forward on getting the doctor's fix done. Uh, we will move forward and try to partner with him on a bunch of economic issues because that's question. been happening. Y you're uh your apparent, your future leader, uh, Chuck Schumer, uh, made a speech uh, in 2014 and mm -hmm. said he thought that the Affordable Care Act was a mistake, that it, would, it, it jeopardized the Democratic Party. Um, you supported the Affordable Care Act. Did you consider it a mistake? Uh, no. And I think what Chuck was getting at, and I've talked to him about that speech, he was getting at the timing of it um, and that it came at a time um, when we had it, many people wanted to more focus on some of the economic issues. But then again, when you step back and look at it and you think, <laughs> well, maybe if we'd done immigration reform earlier in the Bush years, well, we would have probably got it done well, for sure. So I think the president made that judgment call. And I do think there's things I'd like to see changed. I'm obviously like to get, we got the medical device tax. Which suspended. is a big issue in your state. Uh -huh. I think that that's an issue. I think there's some things that we can do to make it actually my major focus, which I appreciated that the president had was on making our healthcare 
more cost effective and efficient. Some things were put in there for that. I think we need to do more to bring costs down. And that's the hardest thing to do. And it would have been easier to do with Republican support. The uh, pre- I was in the White House at the time. I was very nervous about the mm-hmm. health reform, even though I have a child with a chronic illness. So I had a real impetus. To, and I almost went bankrupt mm-hmm. trying to pay her medical bills. But um, but the president said, look, if we don't do it in the first two years, it, we'll never get it mm-hmm. done. Because his anticipation was that Democrats would have a tough year in 2010. Had to. Mm-hmm. Uh, Democrats had won huge majorities over two elections and now you're in the mm-hmm. uh, you're in a essentially you know a near depression uh, situation so you know and i think republicans made that same calculation so his thought was uh, it wouldn't get would you think the affordable care act could have passed after 2010 um, well, I not, mean, in, in 2011, with I the say. changes that we saw with the House and everything, um, when the Democrats lost power in the House, I think that would have been really hard. So when get I heard done. Schumer say that, I thought, well, if he hadn't done it, then it wouldn't have gotten done. We would not have an affordable <laughs> yeah. care. I think what he was trying to get at. Um, I'm which, not trying to put you in. No, it. it's fine. I, 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 I think what he was trying to get at was that um, it would have been. If there was some way to have done it with Republicans, maybe it would have been narrower. Maybe it would have been um, at a different time. That's what he's trying to say. But I think in reality, it was really hard to move. And in fact, what the president did was there were a lot of proposals in that bill that the Republicans had been uh, proposing for a long time, like helping small businesses afford health care. So it was a mix of things. Again, if I had done it myself, I would have had more emphasis on on ways to push the health care system to make it more I was around when he was meeting with some Republicans, and they all made clear that there was sort of a prohibition on uh, cooperating, uh, that the... Yeah. That was the policy of the Republican caucus. I just caucus. keep going back to immigration reform, which I hope whoever our new president is, uh, I hope it's Hillary, um, but that, that that will be a major focus because twice that's got shoved to uh, near the end and it hasn't worked. Uh, Bush valiantly tried to get that done. Yes. Those were my first uh, two years here, and he really was trying, but he had lost the steam to be able to do it. Um, and this time it happened some again. So that's an example when you look at the Obamacare and the health care. The reason the president did that early was I think he figured out that it was going to be really hard to do it later. The uh, for, Do you have a favorite Republican? To I mean, you, you know, people think of Democrats in one silo and Republicans in another. Is there someone on the other side of the aisle who you really admire and like working well, with? Well, I actually have a huge section in my book called Republicans I Have Loved to work with. Um, so just like I wouldn't pick one Democrat, I won't pick one Republican, but people I have worked with, Susan Collins, when she stood and said, uh, we need to end the shutdown, anyone who wants to work with me, I was the first Democrat that called her. And we basically, 14 of us, half women, came up with a deal and brought it to both leaders and said, we're gonna, we have the press gallery reserved in three hours if there's not some kind of agreement. That was a fun day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we got an agreement. Um, I worked a lot. I've worked a lot with everyone from uh, John McCain on uh, prescription drugs from Canada uh, to Chuck Grassley. Uh, Roy Blunt and I have done a lot of work together. I've also worked with John Hoven, my neighbor, uh, on a bunch of things with STEM and science and technology. Um, I can go through the list because uh, for me, John Cornyn and I did the uh, sex trafficking bill that passed last year. So on individual individual things, you can can find partners 
and people will operate in good faith is what you're saying. That's what I found. And you may not agree with them on everything, but you need to figure out what you're standing your ground on. And I believe that's what the Democrats have done in the Senate this year. I'm pretty proud of some of the work we've done as being in the minority. I mean, we stood our ground on women's issues. We've stood our ground on the environment. We've stood our ground on um, the work that um, at, needs to be done with civil rights. And yet, um, there were um, uh, so many examples from the transportation bill uh, to cybersecurity uh, where we, and we stood our ground on refugees, I'll say that too, and immigration reform. But there's other issues where we have worked um, to get things done, and we've What been about successful. the issue of the Supreme Court? We've got, you're on okay. the Judiciary yeah. Committee. We've got a vacancy. Um, president has appointed uh, Merrick Garland, who I think is probably about as moderate uh, a de- uh, an appointee as a Democrat would ever uh, a point. Well, not to mention you grew up in Illinois. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a that's a that is a bonus. That that certainly adds to his uh, to his uh, very distinguished uh, resume. But um, what do you foresee here? Do you think there's an opportunity to move the Republicans along? Because Mitch McConnell has said. I, not I move on continue it. to hope that there is, and that hope comes from where the people are. Uh, the public overwhelmingly uh, wants to see us move forward with hearings. I don't know what these guys are afraid of. As Angus King recently said, are they afraid? Aren't they afraid that Aren't they afraid? Yeah, aren't they afraid? That, I mean, Merrick Garland's an impressive guy. He is. Uh, and he's been very moderate, and he is someone who looks for consensus and tries to find rulings where you bring more people together. He had the support of everyone from Orrin Hatch to John McCain uh, to Senator Coates in the last time he was up uh, for the D.C. Circuit. Uh, Senator Hatch actually took to the floor and said, I challenge right. anyone but none to none of say them are for him now. Him. Yeah, but— the point is is that they know in their hearts that he's a moderate and that he's a consensus builder. And when you look at the fact that we, history, 1916, we've always had a hearing unless someone was immediately confirmed. No seat left open this long since the Civil War. I just think we have very good arguments. What do your colleagues say? You talk to them privately. Mm-hmm. What do they tell you? Well, about what this? I remember from these private discussions during Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor's confirmation was them all saying, "Well, if it was Merrick Garland." No, I understand what they them. said then, but what do they tell you I, now? I, um, you, do, you I think, must. I, I, I know you're not shy. You must so remind them. You must remind pressure. them of those conversations. You, you had two senators this week who said they wanted hearings and then changed their minds. You are getting. They are getting so much pressure from the right and. In the end, while it has been an ugly political season, to me, the American people see through this. And they don't want a court that can't make a decision for two years. And this gridlock and, and all of the, the finger-pointing and all of the hate words, no one thinks that should spill over onto the court, well, you're, the highest you're, court you're of the land. You're a practicing politician. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure you talk to them politician to politician. Yeah. I, uh, I talk to them do as you a have some? Do you have some sympathy for the bind they're in? <laughs> I actually don't. I actually said at the judiciary hearing, now I'm out there for the world to see. I said, I've struggled with this. If it was a Republican president and we had a Democratic Senate, what would I do? And as a lawyer, as someone who respects the Constitution, I would say we'd have to go forward with hearings. Now, it would depend on the nominee if I would support them or not. And I know that they suffered a tragic loss. Scalia died unexpectedly. But then in a democracy, just like you have a presidential candidates or wins or loses, you move on. You allow the process to work as it's supposed to. And that's what makes me so sad about what be, they're doing. You've got six or, or colleagues uh, who are running in states that Obama carried, including Chuck Grassley. 
this year who's running against the appropriately named Patty Judge. Uh, do you think uh, any of them or all of them will suffer if they don't uh, support hearings for Garland? I think they easily could because just what I've been hearing at home, uh, people are still talking about, though, just people at the grocery store, they'll say, did you see that? It's a 4-4 decision. It's because we don't have a judge. This just just strikes at the core of anyone that thinks this isn't fair, this isn't how politics are supposed to work. And I don't think that they can explain it uh, in any kind of a constitutional and a historical context. So I do think it's going to be an issue. They are calculating, the Republican Party and the, the forces that support it are calculating that people don't vote based on Supreme Court, right? They're calculating, yeah, they're not going to notice. They're not going to care. Well, they do care about democracy, and they do care about America. And to me, this is just the polar opposite of what we should be doing if you wanted to have a court and a system that's fair. Um, and I think it does become an have issue in a bigger way. Have you told any of these way. colleagues that you, you feel this could cost them their, their uh, seats? Yeah, I think I have. I've mentioned it a few times. And are and they I, concerned about it? They just... They just keep doing. They bring up, you know, something. I don't know what they bring up, but they make these arguments. That, and but you I, think I bring it's fear up, of the right. That's what I think. They don't admit that's what it is, but I think that's what it if is. If you were Hillary Clinton and you won the election, would you um, re-nominate re Merrick Garland, or would you appoint your own? Well, I'm not going to. I'm not going to tell her what to do. I personally think that there's many good choices out there. I think that Judge Garland's a good choice, um, and um, and I think the but fact wouldn't there that be a lot of pressure? Wouldn't there be a lot of pressure from the progressive community were uh, were she elected to choose someone who's more liberal? than uh, Merrick Garland? I'm sure there's pressure, but in the end, she's going to make her own decision based on who thinks she thinks is going to be a good judge. And um, the fact to me that he has undertaken, when I saw him out in the Rose Garden with the president choking up, um, you know, just with, as the president introduced him, I thought this man, not only, of course he wants his job, right? But he's taken on the burden of the whole judiciary. This simple fact yeah. that we're supposed to have an independent judiciary and that we're supposed to not have Congress denying the, the, either the funding or the ability to put a judge on. Um, and I think for that reason, in addition to that, he's a great judge and so well-respected that uh, he would deserve to be the next I, choice. I, I, just, uh, I just think that... Um, it is acts. It, it it seems almost a certainty to me that there's going to be a ton of pressure to say he's 63. By next year, he'll be 64. Appoint someone younger. Appoint someone more uh, yeah. progressive. Particularly if she if she brings in a Democratic Senate with her. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, she may have more than one choice to make for the court eventually. And so, um, you know, she'll have the opportunity to so do you, more than one you judge. Personally, you personally would like to see Garland, uh, even if she gets elected, you'd well, like to see Garland. I, I think he's a very good choice. I'm not going to like, guarantee You are a practicing politician. Well, I can... I, I'm not going to. One <laughs> of the things I did even with the president when, when you know, people are talking who should be, I know you you go through different names, but I really believe in the end that is a president's choice of who they pick. So that of is why I'm a, pausing. Of course it's Do a I like choice. him? Yes. <laughs> 
I think he'd be great. Uh, you were mentioned. Why did you remove your name from consideration? Well, I love my job now, and I think right now at this time of great lifetime tumult, appointment. That's pretty sweet. There you go. That is that is nice. Uh, but I like what I'm doing now, and I think that uh, the way I approach this job uh, is a positive right now, and we need more people that are willing to bring the temperature down a little on the rhetoric and get get things done. Speaking of of Hillary, you supported, and I mentioned earlier, you support Obama in 2008. Why did you support him then, and why are you supporting her now? Well, it was a tough decision for me back then, uh, but I... Um, I think at the time I said I'm between a Barack and a hard place because uh, I like both of them so much. Uh, but I, uh, in the end, had decided... Uh, and you couldn't decided... get over the hill, is that it? Right? <laughs> there you okay. go. Oh, right. man. Okay. Be... We could do this okay, all day. Okay, let's not go there. All right. uh, but I, uh, at, the, at the end, I had gotten to know him. Uh, he came to my state several times uh, when I was running and uh, liked him and saw this... Uh, kind of magic back then in his campaign. Um, and You're a woman ability. in the Senate. It must have been a hard decision. Uh, yes, it was. And it wasn't easy with uh, some people at home either. Um, but I decided that um, he would be a really good president. And I think that history will show that's true. Um, and then uh, now, to me, the choice was really clear, even before I knew who was going to run. Um, I was in with her. I, For the same reasons, it was a hard decision before. She's someone that has uh, incredible experience. She's someone uh, that brings with her an understanding of these issues. I saw how she worked in the Senate. And when you look at how strong she has been uh, in these debates, when you look at how strong she has been uh, in her uh, public appearances, um, and uh, I personally like her, so... Well, yeah, I appreciate all of the virtues of, of Hillary that you've shared here. Why are her negatives so high? Why, did, why is there such a resistance uh, to her? You see these polls with her negatives in the 50s. What is it that uh, people are resistant to? Well, I think, first of all, we have not reached this point in the campaign, and you know when that point is, where it's a contrast uh, between her and one other Republican candidate, that the people can just step back and really watch her and see her take on someone else and see um, what their views are. But there and where are things about are, her. Just, this, you know. Okay, I know, but, if, but let me just get to that. So what do we have instead? Okay, well, we have her having been attacked for years. There's no doubt about it. We have multi-millions of dollars spent against her that portray her in a certain way. She valiantly, whenever she does appearances and debates does well by all accounts and a lot of people that watch that have you seen in a lot of the primary states have decided you know what um, I'm going to vote for her I, I like what she said when she was in Ohio I like what she said I've watched her at a you know town hall meeting in Illinois and I like what she said so those things have happened um, and to me uh, we have to get to that point where she is best able to make her case. And one of the other things that we've seen happening is Trump and the rise of Trump and the rise of negativity. And she's someone that has tended to be not a, you know, a, someone who's, a I would say, a, a barnstormer speaker or those kinds of things. She's admitted it herself. She's someone that's been more thoughtful about policy get things done. And I think that is going to come out more when you see the one-on-one -on -one debates. You uh, know, you worked with her, you know her well. Mm -hmm. it, what is her persona, per, her personal persona 
as compared to her public persona? Well, as you you probably know, she is incredibly warm, not just one-on-one, but in small groups and uh, will, you know, remember something about your daughter or uh, ask about something, a person that you're friends with. I mean, she really is someone that is is actually kind of fun to talk to, has a lot of energy, contrary to Trump's claims. Funny, she's got a good sense of humor. Funny, she has a great sense of humor, and that isn't always coming out, I will admit that in every appearance. Why is that? You You know where it's come out, though? I don't want to make invidious comparisons. But you, you're someone who your basic personality is the same. Uh, you know, you, you know, in large audiences, small audiences, you know. And what is it that? May, why is she so constrained when she uh, is in public? Because I think that she has come up through this, and I don't think it was like that early on. But she's come up through this thing where whatever she says, if she makes one minor mistake, uh, she gets attacked uh, in a way that I couldn't even imagine. And I think for good or for bad, that creates kind of an armor around Ryu where that doesn't change that she's going to be a good president. It doesn't change uh, that she um, can do well in debates and make her case and get things done. It's just made her be more cautious in how she talks about things. Caution. Like, I always believe that authenticity is a big yeah. demand of a president. But you would candidate. agree talking to her one-on-one, she's pretty authentic. Like yes, she's I a know. Real well, I mean, but but we, I've seen this before. You know, Al Gore was a little bit that Mondale way. Mondale is a little like that. He's very cautious on TV. Yeah. It doesn't mean he was not a great vice president and uh, didn't do what were the words uh, when he and Carter got out of office. You know, we told the truth. We obeyed the law. We kept the peace. And while it didn't feel like that at the time... Yeah, um, he was he was amazing. This guardedness extends obviously to other things, and mm-hmm. she's been uh, under attack for the e- uh, for having her private email for not releasing mm-hmm. her. Bernie Sanders, your other mm-hmm. colleague, mm-hmm. Uh, been attacking for not releasing her uh, speeches. Do you think uh, she she should be more forthcoming about these things? Um, I think that, again, she has made very clear she'll release the speeches. Let's say she has a Republican opponent and they release speeches. I think she will. I think she's, again, trying to have in a very difficult political atmosphere, um, she's trying to have an even playing field. I I don't have that problem. I've never given a paid speech. Nor is Bernie Sanders. So when he says, I don't have any to release. Yes, it's a different thing. But I think the, the bigger thing here is the difference between her and someone like Trump, the fact that no matter how low he's gone, she has at least kept her head above water. And she and Bernie what if have he's had not civil the debates. Yes, they've had moments that have not been pretty, but it is much more normal debating than now, you see with you, Trump. You talk oh, about you're the, the, you're the center next door. <laughs> the One of the people who's next door to you on the Judiciary Committee is Ted Cruz. Uh-huh. What, you, what, what are your, what are your impressions of him? Uh, I um, I am very concerned about his views, about the things he said about immigrants, about the things that he said that, in my view, have made this country great, uh, some of his fiscal policies, other things. And so that's why I think there'll be such a stark contrast depending on who this person is. And when you look at just the whole Republican field of all the things that have happened and all the things they've said that are so divisive, and she has an ad in New York right now, a state that's coming up for her that's very important, talking about what a 
has made the state of New York great, and that is bringing people in. And they have done the opposite. In fact, as you know, I think it was Carson that actually said um, a Muslim should never run for president. Well, you know what? We've never had a Muslim president. We've never had a Jewish president. We've never had a woman president. But you don't tell a little kid in the United States of America that they can never run for president. That's not what's made this country great. And in the end, when those debates come out between uh, what I believe will be our candidate, and I know we're not done yet, Hillary Clinton, and whether it is Ted Cruz or Donald Trump or whoever else, those statements that those guys have made and the things they've said are there on the record. Are you for surprised all to see. knowing, seeing what you've seen on the floor of the Senate, are you surprised to see all of these uh, colleagues of yours on the Republican side endorsing Cruz? Uh, yes. Uh, what 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 do you, what do you think the added- I think I think that uh, part of it is that um, you know uh, Lindsay who, who I adore uh, endorsed him and actually said in the same breath or in the same week that if there'd been a murder no one would admit it or something who murdered him I mean it was if so they, if they you were clearly, murdered on the Senate floor yeah no I'll let you I was deliberately yeah. being vague yes. so I wouldn't be quoted saying it but I I um, I I think they are admitting this uh, the issues there and so. Um, I I am surprised, but at the same time, I think they fear that the kind of candidate that Trump is and has become and will continue to be, and that's why they're doing it. I don't think it's an excuse. What about Bernie? You've worked with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you surprised, first of all, to see him do as well as he's done? Uh, not entirely. Um, he's uh, has always had that amazing great grassroots uh, capacity. Um, always been an incredibly hard worker. You know, came up through the grassroots. Uh, came up in races that were difficult that no one expected him to win. And um, I think that in the end. Um, Um, If Hillary ends up being the nominee, which I believe will happen, that the thing about Bernie that I've seen time and time again is that he believes in his work, but he also, and he's made clear about this, believes in supporting people uh, to make change. And I think he'll be a team player in the end, but I can't put words in his mouth. Um, And I think they have much more in agreement than they do uh, that separates them and the things that separates them, she's made clear. Do you think um, when you hear him talk about single payer and some of the other Mm -hmm. things that he's proposing, do you think that he is, she would say he's not being honest about what can be accomplished. Mm -hmm. I asked him when he was on this podcast, we Mm -hmm. were together on the healthcare bill, we couldn't get a public option. So how do you get single payer? Right. Um, Well, I I think that her point, given what we've seen with this Congress trying as the president has done, and she has many times referenced what the president has done, he's had to make compromises. He's had to do things with executive orders. But that's anger. You hear from these folks. That's angered progressives in the Democratic Party. Okay, they, yeah, you know. but it is a big party. It's a big tent. And her, and I don't think anyone can say that the president has been some conservative in his approach to things. He's just simply realized there's some things that he has to compromise and some things he'll stand his ground on. And um, I think that's what you see in her is this pragmatism to try to get things done. And there are some things I, I don't agree with Bernie on. I'm a big supporter of the uh, Export-Import Bank. You know, not the top issue on every progressive mind, but I have hundreds of small businesses that have been helped by that in Minnesota that that's allowed them to compete um, against other companies in other countries. We're literally going to cut ourselves off if we don't have that. I don't agree with his position on that. I The first immigration bill that 
Bush was trying to get through. Sheldon Whitehouse and I were the two new Democrats that were part of that group with Ted Kennedy. And Ted tried valiantly to get that done, working with Bush, as we know. And um, Senator Sanders later did support immigration reform, uh, but wasn't um, a support of that for reasons that may be valid. But I like the fact that Hillary is willing to be pragmatic, but still, as we all know from her history of standing up for women and others, to stand her ground. But it's tough to you. You and I. I, I work, you know, at the Institute of Politics with young young people. You see young people all the time. It's tough to say to young idealists, you know what, uh, single payer is great, but it's not. We're not going to get it. Uh, we, we should uh, have much more uh, significant mm-hmm. taxes on the wealthy, but. It's not practical. We're not going to get it. It, it. Pragmatism is a hard thing to sell. Isn't it is, it? but I'm not. I'm. I'm just, just explaining the difference between the two. No, I understand. Of them. But I'm just. Not, saying, I'm just. I'm just saying as a political having a, as a political matter. Having a 20 year old daughter, yeah. I, I know, and what I've seen of my daughter's friends and others, and that I meet with students throughout our state. Um, their bigger focus right now are things like civil liberties and mm-hmm. um, and gay marriage, and you look where the Republicans are on that. And Hillary's been strong on this issue. She's been. They care about uh, women's rights. They care about climate change a lot, and she has a very strong record on that. They care about um, having a, a economy that's going to work, um, and they care about that. So. Um, I, I don't 80, tell them. Yeah, I don't tell them. Oh, hey, back. hey, don't worry. I say we need some major changes, which the president has said we need major changes to student loans. We need major changes. I just believe she's the one that can get those major changes done. I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, close by asking you about your trip to Cuba with the president. I know you've been working on this issue for a long time. First of all, why have you? Why has a senator from Minnesota taken an interest in uh, in Cuba? Well, um, first of all, I have got. I was been. I've been involved in this issue for years, just including. I think the first few years I was there, and some of this is having people from the Midwest. David Ignatius wrote a column about this called "Internationalism of the Heartland." Uh, I think you need to move things, and uh, whether it is um, some of the changes we've seen, uh, support for the work the president has done uh, in the uh, in the greater world, or Cuba. And for me, number one, it's an economic issue uh, for our country. Eleven million people 90 miles off our shore. Our state already does $20 million in agriculture exports to Cuba. We could see that double, triple with lifting the embargo, and that's why I am leading the bill to lift the embargo, among other things. Two, it's really cold in Minnesota. People would like to go visit there every so often. They can just take a, a boat from Miami. And three, of course, the Cuban people. Uh, and the people are way ahead of the government from what I've seen. Uh, there's 500,000 entrepreneurs that want to do business with our country. And when I first visited there, I saw the date December 17th on all the artwork. And I literally thought, well, it must be Castro's birthday. No, it was the day that our president announced that he wanted to open relations with Cuba. So this, to me, goes beyond uh, Cuba. It is about our country being willing to acknowledge to the rest of the world that 50-some years of a failed policy isn't right, that we don't want to isolate a country, that we we are a strong enough country to reach out and show them what we do to get them to change our human rights policy. I think it'll not just help us in Cuba. I think it's going to help us in all of Central America and South America in terms of our relations. Well, uh- what are the chances of getting the embargo lifted? Uh, what's your assessment of that in the Congress? 
We have 24 co-sponsors now, a number of Republicans. I think it won't happen before the election, especially if Ted Cruz is still uh, hanging around in the presidential politics. Marco Rubio, of course, was a fierce opponent of lifting the embargo, but he's not running again. We have some people on our own side uh, that are against it, but the votes are truly there. I just need the Republican leadership to bring it up, or we need different leadership, because if you brought that up, in the House or the Senate, I think it passes. You have 60 votes in the Senate, you think? I think that if we did it before the election, probably not. But next year? If we do it into next year, I think so, yes. Amy Klobuchar, thank you so much. The Senator Next Door. <laughs> Everybody you. should read it. It's great to be with you. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.